0: Well, good morning. Um, My name is Conrad Kuros, and I um, am lucky enough to serve as the RUF campus minister at SMU in Dallas, Texas. Um, so I'm so so excited to be here with, with you all this morning. Um, I come, I'm not a native Texan. I've only been here um, just over a year. But I love Texas, but I'm originally from Georgia. And I met my wife. I, I actually worked for RUF previously in California. I met my wife out there. We have two, two little children, a two-and-a-half year old son named Miller and a daughter named Annie. Um, but we're we just so thrilled to live, in, to live in DFW and to be able to to serve the Lord on the college campus at SMU. At this point, let me invite you to please stand um, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. I'll start in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive it today. Um, By the power of your spirit, illuminate it to us, Lord. Help us to hear from you and to learn, and to be encouraged. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. So as I mentioned, um, right after I moved to, to Los Angeles, uh, after I graduated from college, I moved to Los Angeles to work for UF. and my campus minister there used to ask me this most penetrating question. And so naturally, I stole it, and now impose it on my students at SMU. Um, this morning, I actually want to ask it to you. The question goes like this: If you could ask God for one thing and know that He would give it to you, what would you ask Him for? If you could ask God for one thing and know that He would give it to you, what would you ask Him for? Or to put the question more simply, what do you want? I love um, the movies, and there's this, you know, artful scene in a very fine film. You may have heard of it. It's called The Notebook, where our guy Ryan Gosling, right, is leaning back against that old car, and he says, "What do you want?" what do you want? What do you want? And Rachel McAdams' character is speechless. What do you want? Why is that one of the hardest questions to answer? But you see, if you were to ask that question to the two most prominent people in our passage, both the synagogue ruler and the bleeding woman would have an immediate answer, wouldn't they? There's a famous question we're going to look at in some detail this morning. Um, It's first attributed to a guy named Epicurus around 300 BC, um, but it's continued to pose a significant challenge to believers of all kinds throughout the centuries. It, It goes like this Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not all powerful. Is God able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he's not good. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In our passage today in Mark 5, we will see that Jesus is both able and willing to heal all of our brokenness and to save us from death. But the necessary condition is we must come to him in desperation and faith, without hope in anything else. So if you're a note-taker, um, we're going to look at this wonderful story. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We're going to look at it today through through four kind of movements, okay? Uh, and they're, they're really easy to remember because they just go one, two, three, four, all right? So first, one name. Secondly, two miracles. Thirdly, three questions. And finally, four words. Okay, so four points this morning. One name, two miracles, three questions, and four words. So first, One name. So if you're paying attention right, there are really two central players in our story who, who interact with Jesus. But if you noticed, only one of them gets a name. Verse 22, it says, One of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And in fact, Mark repeats this title, ruler of the synagogue, four times in our little passage. What's the point? Jairus is a VIP. Jairus is a Somebody. By contrast, the introduction to our main, our second main person in verse 25, it's very sparse. It says this, and there was a woman. No title, no name. See, her only her only designation or defining characteristic was not an honor or an ability, but a dishonorable disability. She had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Well, why mention this, right? Like what's in a name? Well, you see, these details are essential for understanding why Mark sandwiched these two stories together as one episode. Mark wants us to see that by all known indicators, these two people represent polar opposites. He's a man, she's a woman. She's poor and and insignificant, Um, he's prominent and rich. He represents the epitome of righteousness before the law, and she is ceremonially unclean. You see, everybody respects Jairus. But no one knows who this bleeding woman is. And yet, y'all, here's the thing. Jesus takes time for each of them. He takes time for each of them. So here's an immediate application for us. You can't be too high class or too low class for Jesus. You can't be too holy to need grace or too sinful to be barred from receiving grace. In fact, y'all, as we search the scriptures, it's shocking how often Jesus takes time for people of no status. So here's where the rubber meets the road. If you're a Christian today, are you? Are you able to spend time with the rich and the prominent in our world without coveting or resenting them? And on the other hand, is it a normal part of your life, like it was for Jesus, to notice and to care for the poor, the marginalized, the lowly? If you're visiting the church today, maybe you were invited by a friend, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, And one of the big inhibitors to faith for you is this fact that Christianity in our culture is often reserved for the privileged and the comfortable. Hear me say this, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not the way of Jesus. Church, we can't follow Christ and continue to uphold the worldly hierarchies. But though we do, God does not ignore those who sin and struggle and suffer. In fact, as we'll see, those are the very people he calls his own. So if that's you today, you may be closer to God's love than you know. Here's a thought worthy of consideration. Did you know that Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, he hated Christianity because he thought it favored the weak and called the powerful to humility? Did you know that Karl Marx hated it for the exact opposite reason? Because he thought Christianity privileged the rich by keeping the poor down with illusory hope. These two big minds that eventually influenced our culture in so many ways, they both criticize Christianity for opposite reasons. But you see, Christianity is actually so unique. Jesus shows equal compassion to both individuals from opposite sides of the social spectrum. Because what did this named man and this nameless woman share in common? They both desperately need Jesus' miraculous intervention. Which brings us to to point two, okay? Two miracles. So where are we in the Bible? Um, We're at the beginning of a gospel, uh, the gospel of Mark. And so far in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been traveling around in Galilee, basically in the suburbs of Jerusalem. And above all, he's been doing a lot of healings. In fact, in the next chapter of Mark, we we get this little summary statement of Jesus' early ministry Mark writes, And wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed all the sick in the marketplaces. The people begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Have you ever thought about that? Everywhere Jesus went, all the sick, all healed. I mean, we're talking dozens of little towns and villages, hundreds of thousands of residents, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of healings. And as a result, there are these massive crowds following Jesus wherever he goes, right? Hoping to witness a bigger miracle today than the one that he did yesterday. And just before our little story, Jesus has done two of the craziest miracles of all. He calmed a a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and he cast out a legion of demons and sent them into the pigs. And then we come to this story this little story within a story in Mark 5, and it begins with a bang. This big shot of the synagogue, Jairus is right in the middle of his nightmare. He's shaming himself on his knees in front of this untrained rabbi with his friends and neighbors and strangers all watching. I mean, it makes us think like if Jairus is so holy, shouldn't he be like doing some ritual in the temple or praying to God? God. What's he doing out here in the sticks with this Jesus guy who many Jewish re- leaders already suspect of being dangerous? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Jairus is desperate. His little daughter is Jairus' real treasure, and there's nothing his power can do for him. But he's not the only one. The unnamed woman silently creeps up behind Jesus. Mark gives us these three brilliant details in verse 26. He writes, first, the bleeding woman had, quote, suffered much under many physicians. Secondly, she spent all she had. And third, she was no better but worse. No better but worse. It's heartbreaking. She's literally come to the end of herself. Years upon years of senseless suffering, all her money, all her energy down the drain. And y'all, let me be explicit about what this hemorrhage means for this woman. According to the Jewish Levitical law, she's ceremonially unclean. She cannot worship or enter the temple. Beyond this, she's a threat to the cleanliness of every other person in her community. No one can touch her. She can't touch anything without, without polluting it. So she no doubt lives alone. She's unmarried, childless. If knowledge of her condition is public, she's shunned. But if she keeps the secret, she's guilty of sin. So perhaps she lies to every single person she meets. She lives in constant fear of being exposed. The word that's used to describe this woman's suffering, it's rare. The, The Greek root of it means to whip or to torture. Her pain is unbearable, worse every day. Have you been there? Some of you in this room know what it is to be in that place to find yourself desperate in the face of life's circumstances. Some of us have experienced evil and suffering firsthand, have walked through the tragedy of car accidents, of calamity, of cancer, of suicide. Some of us have been laid completely bare by addiction, by affliction, by abuse, by loss. But here's the spiritual truth we all need to hear today. We're all desperate. We're all desperate. Some of us feel it more acutely than others, but Jairus and the bleeding woman are physical pictures of our spiritual reality. As sinners in a sea of suffering, as those with stone-cold hearts in a stone-cold world, as those who have done evil and loved unrighteousness before a good and righteous God, all of us are spiritually sick and dying because of sin. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is unflinching on this point. Evil is what we call brokenness and injustice out there, but the seed of all evil comes from right here. I like this Russian author. His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He one time said from a Russian gulag, the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. Each of us is a sinner. We perpetuate evil, so we deserve punishment. For the wages of sin is death. But friends, suffering is not wrong. It's actually the natural response to evil. It can even be a gift. Suffering wakes us up to evil out there and sin in here. So when it comes actually to evil, sin, and suffering, we're all desperately in this together. And so in Mark 5, we see two desperate sufferers. But before it gets better, it actually gets worse. Before the two miracles both Jairus and the bleeding woman undergo a second suffering. First, let's look at the woman. Um, some of you, if you're golf fans, I'm a golf fan, um, you might remember Tiger Woods had a huge comeback win at Eastlake a few years ago, and this crowd just enveloped him coming up the 18th fairway. Or if you follow celebrities, you might have seen uh, videos of, of celebrities arriving at LAX and the paparazzi that would just swarm them. That's kind of what's happening here with Jesus, Picture this vivid scene with me. Because of her infirmity, this bleeding woman is weak and anemic. But even on her last leg, she pushes and shoves her way through a crowd, right up to Jesus, and she stretches out her hand to catch his cloak in the breeze. What amazing faith. And in a split second, Jesus changes her entire existence. No doctor could heal her. No medication existed. No one could help her. But Jesus does the miraculous. But then he starts asking questions, searching for the identity of the one who touched him. So this woman is like freaking out, right? Maybe she thinks, like, what have I done? An unclean woman bumping her way through a crowd? And then I touched a rabbi. Is he gonna be angry? Is he gonna take back this incredible gift? The silence is agonizing. So the bleeding woman doesn't wait any longer. She opens up and owns it. With fear and trembling, shaking knees and a shaky voice, she does the most uncomfortable thing. She tells Jesus the whole truth. And Jesus says, go in peace and be healed. So there's one miracle. The crowd goes wild. But there's at least one person there who isn't celebrating too much, right? You see, our story gets a big twist in verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to the nameless woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. This is a part of the story where the record scratches a little bit. It's like, hold on, what? I thought the whole point was that Jesus was on his way to heal this little girl. Now she's dead? Imagine how Jairus must feel. He's just convinced Jesus to go on this urgent mission. And Jairus is probably like power walking, right? You know, maybe jogging, pushing people out of the way. And Jesus stops dead. Y'all, Jesus makes Jairus the most important guy around wait. Jesus allows this no-name woman to interrupt him. And he patiently listens to her whole story. I mean, Jairus must be thinking, are you kidding me? How can you stop when my daughter's life is on the line? You see, if only Jesus hadn't been interrupted, this little girl wouldn't have been dead. If only Jesus would have gotten there, would have just gone a little quicker, like with Mary and Martha's brother, would have just spoken the word like with the centurion's servant, this whole thing could have been avoided. What are you doing, God? How can you allow this? Have you been there too? Beloved, here's an inconvenient but essential truth. Delay is part of God's plan. Delay is part of God's plan. As the old adage goes, God is rarely early, never late. What are you waiting on this morning? The relationship that never seems to come, or for one to finally work out? The doctor to figure out exactly what is wrong? The spouse or the child who refuses to change? the physical or emotional or mental anguish that simply won't go away. Friends, we don't always know why, but God often makes us wait. But we can know this. Though God's timing is not our timing, His timing is perfect, and He only delays because He loves us. So if you're in the place right now where you feel desperate, where all you can do is wait on the Lord... Hold on. Don't give up. Because the second miracle comes. You see, Jesus doesn't heal the sick daughter of the synagogue ruler, does he? He doesn't heal her. But he does something so much more amazing and powerful and beautiful. He raises her up from the dead. You see, y'all, Jesus makes Jairus wait, and he made Mary and Martha wait. And the disciples waited three excruciating days. And the bleeding woman waited 12 years. And Joseph waited 20. And Moses waited 40. And none of them would have seen God's miraculous salvation and power if he hadn't delayed. Amen? In Mark 5, both the bleeding woman and Jairus waited. They suffered twice. But in the end, Jesus performed two incredible, amazing, incomparable miracles. He may just have you waiting in order to show you the scope of his miraculous power. But these are no easy matters. Which brings us to to point number three, three questions. So some of you may have heard what I just said about how God makes us wait in order to show us his power and his goodness. And you might have thought, you're saying God lets us experience brutally hard things just to like show us on the back end that he can overcome them? Or maybe you thought, Isn't that kind of optimism like slapping a Band-Aid on an open wound? Or maybe you thought, yeah, right. Why should I believe this Christian spin? Well, if these questions resonate with you at all, um, you're not alone. Because you see, um, we see these exact same objections raised in our passage. There are three questions that are asked in our story. The first question is asked by the disciples. Secondly, the servants of Jairus, and finally by Jesus himself. And these three questions represent these three different attitudes in response to Jesus and his miracles. Okay, I think they represent these three attitudes. First, rationalism. Second, cynicism. And third, derision. Let's, let's take these in turn. So if the first question we get is from the disciples. Remember the scene, okay? There are thousands of people pushing their way to get a glimpse of Jesus, and the disciples say, you see the crowd. How can you ask who touched me? Like, on the one hand, it's totally normal for these disciples to say this, right? To say, for real? Like, if you've ever been on a subway in New York or maybe standing in line at the Cowboy Stadium, you understand the, the disciples' confusion. But like they so often do, right? The disciples miss the point. They don't realize that Jesus is currently in the middle of two supernatural miracles. So they say, "Look, Jesus, it's not humanly possible to figure out who touched you." That's rationalism. Next we see the servants of Jairus. They come right to report the news that the little girl is dead and they ask Jesus this question, "Why bother the teacher anymore?" Now, on the one hand, we don't want to rush to judgment in our treatment treatment of these servants either. I mean, they're kind of right. What else is there to do when someone dies? But at the same time, can't you hear the tinge of cynicism in the servants of Jairus? The hopelessness of unbelief. Why even bother? He's just a rabbi. He's just some guy. What could he possibly do now? That's cynicism. And finally, we see these mourners weeping at Jairus' house. Of all the lines in the story, this is perhaps the the most challenging. When Jesus turns and says in verse 39, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Again, on the one hand, this reaction makes total sense. This is what we do when tragedy strikes. Can Jesus possibly be rebuking their sadness? Well, he can't be upset with them for grieving the dead because he does the exact same thing in a similar story at his friend Lazarus's tomb. But instead, Jesus' question, like like so many of his words in the New Testament, I I believe it's meant to be a bit jarring, to wake us up from false beliefs. I don't see anger in Jesus' words, but a gentle priming for what he's about to do. It's as if he says, why are you crying? Don't you know that death for me is like sleep? I can wake her up again. But the key phrase directly follows this question, verse 40. It says, and they laughed at him they mocked him that's derision so friends i think we're left with these three these three responses rationalism cynicism and derision and friends can you see how that perfectly mirrors our own hearts today as we approach jesus and his ability to do the miraculous in our lives what about you how are you tempted towards rationalism cynicism even derision how about this question Are you totally confident God can do miracles? Or as an educated person, does it make you squirm a bit inside to have to admit to a boss, maybe a friend, professor, a coworker, a date, that yes, I do actually believe Jesus did miracles, even though I know it sounds impossible? Or is the whole concept of miracles just ridiculous to you? Don't miss this. The crowd is the third major character interacting with Jesus in this episode, and you and I are a part of it. We're witnesses to these things too. Throughout the gospel, Mark is demanding an answer to this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a teacher? Is he just a healer? Is he just a magician doing tricks? Or could he possibly be for real? Could this possibly be the wonder worker sent from God, the Savior, the Savior? God Himself. And so I ask you, friends, this morning, each of you, search your own heart. Do you believe God can do miracles? Do you believe it? I'm just a visitor this morning, which gives me the luxury of being extremely blunt. Friends, hear me clearly on this. We better hope that God is in the business of doing the miraculous, because if not, we are doomed. We're doomed. You see, if God can't do miraculous things, brothers and sisters, then the Holy Spirit can't raise Jesus from the dead. If God can't do miracles, then he can't change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. If God can't do miracles, then evil's gonna win, and you and I are gonna die, and everyone we love is gonna die, and that'll be final. That'll just be it. Y'all, if Jesus isn't the miracle worker, if he isn't the sinless savior, if he isn't God himself, you and me have no hope. We have no hope. This world has no hope. Evil and death win. Without the miracle of the incarnation and the resurrection and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, there can't be salvation and forgiveness of your sins and my sins. Without miracles, there is no life everlasting where there's no more pain or tears anymore. If God doesn't do miracles, beloved, it truly is weeping and gnashing of teeth all the way down. And you know it, don't you? You know if God is not in the business of doing the seemingly impossible, then Epicurus is right. He can't be all powerful or all good. Why even call him God? If you're not a Christian in the room today, I hope that your heart rate is going up a bit too. Because what can you say to the problem of evil? What does the world have to say to your suffering? What can existentialism do for you? As I see it, the only options left for you in the face of evil and suffering are one, just like triteness, you know, like everything just happens for a reason without any real basis or substance, or perhaps chaos. Everything in the universe, including you and me, including evil and suffering, it's just random, vapid, meaningless. But that would have to include your pain. Is that satisfying to you? Does your pain feel like nothing to you? Of course not. You're desperate too. You see, y'all, everyone in the world feels that evil is wrong that it's unjust, that suffering is real and deeply painful, that things like random acts of violence and racism and depression and sexual abuse and pandemics and mass shootings and Alzheimer's and unjustified wars and death are not how it's supposed to be. Only Christianity says your suffering matters. It's actually the appropriate response to evil. And there's someone who can do something about it. So friends, what do we do What do we do with our cynicism, our rationalism, our derision? What do we do with evil and suffering? We come desperately to Jesus. We come desperately to Jesus, to our suffering servant, to our kind and compassionate Savior and King, Jesus, without hope in anything else. Oh, beloved, return with me to the gospel of Jesus Two two quick details in this text show us so much. Mark 5, 24 says, and he went. And verse 30 adds, and Jesus perceiving that power had gone out from him. Y'all, Jairus comes pleading for Jesus' help, and bang, just like that, Jesus is like, yeah, let's go now. And this desperate woman reaches out her hand in this crowd and touches his clothes, and immediately, as if unintentionally, he heals her completely. Do you see how easy it is for Jesus to do the miraculous? Beloved, Jesus is so able and so willing to heal you completely. He may not give you exactly what you want, but he will give you everything you need. Ask him and see. One final point this morning before we close, four words. Like any great storyteller, um, Mark saves the best for last. Okay, so our story today began with this unnamed woman, right, who had had a discharge of blood. Her entire existence wrapped up in that short description. But we said Jesus changes her name and reverses her whole identity. Let's see it. When everyone else would have averted their gaze, Jesus looked at this woman in the eye and he called her daughter. She's no longer a pariah but she's the adopted, purified, honored daughter of God's covenant family, from woman to daughter. But if possible, I I like these other two words even more. When we first meet Jairus, he tells Jesus that his, quote, little daughter is sick. And the word that that Jairus uses, it's more of a description of her age than an affectionate term. He's saying she's a girl of 12. But as Jesus is raising this little girl from the dead, he speaks these words over her. Okay, verse 41. He says, Talitha Kumi. And Mark recounts these words for us in the original Aramaic, so we know they're important. And even translates them for us: Little girl, arise. But y'all, in Greek, the original language of the Bible, Jesus doesn't use Jairus' word from before, but he uses a different one: karasion. And the word karasion means little lamb. Here's the point. What Jesus says to Jairus' daughter should be rendered something like this. Arise, sweetheart. Or I very much prefer, it's okay to get up now, darling. You see, Jairus' daughter is no, is no dying little girl. She's the living and beloved darling of the Most High King. Four words make all the difference from woman to daughter, from girl to darling. Believer, if you're in Christ this morning, don't you know that He sees you that way too? Redeemer Arlington, when was the last time you paused to see yourself through the eyes of our kind and compassionate Father who adopted you and loved you and called you His own? In closing this morning, there are actually four more words from the text I'd like to look at really briefly. In the heat of the moment, Jesus turns to Jairus and he says these words He says, Don't fear. Only believe. I should just mention, right, from sinful human lips, these words can feel like an albatross. But from the words of our Savior, from the lips of our Savior, how sweet they are. Friends, if any of you are currently in the middle of suffering, hear these words of Jesus spoken over you today. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Don't fear. Just believe. Is that trite hope? I mean, how can Jesus say this? He knows the end. He knows the end. You see, Jesus knew all along that he was going to miraculously heal this desperate woman and raise this desperate man's daughter from death to life. And Jesus knew all along that he was headed to the cross. Y'all, if you remember anything from this sermon this morning, let it be this. Here's the gospel from Mark 5. Jesus makes himself unclean twice. He makes himself unclean twice. He touches a bleeding woman and a corpse. You see, it cost Jesus something to perform these miracles, but he did it anyway. Why? Because he deeply loved these people. Because he deeply loves you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the cross. You see, there was another mob thronging around Jesus full of unclean and dying sinners. You and I were in that mob and we cried out, crucify him. Yet Jesus was willing to bear the full punishment for the sin of the world, to reconcile sinners like you and me to God. And Jesus was able on the cross at Calvary to overcome evil for good. It's a miracle. It is a miracle, but it's true. I'll leave you with this. This bleeding woman probably had other health issues in the future. This little girl died again. But Jesus knew because of his death and resurrection, they will be healed. And they'll be raised up on that last day. And they will dwell with him, with our compassionate and beautiful and glorious God forever and ever, perfectly whole and eternally alive. And so, beloved, will you. Isn't that what you really want? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is good. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful, beautiful word. We pray, Lord, that you would remind each of us today that you are that kind of God, a God who loves us, a God who is willing to make himself unclean, to go all the way, even to the cross, that we might be healed. Help us to come to you, Lord, as you call us to, in desperation and faith, without hope in anything else, and receive from you forgiveness, healing, and life everlasting. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by his power. Amen.